Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, starting with verse 1. The last time we saw uh, the Gentile conversion exemplified in this meeting between Cornelius and Peter and their house, uh, Cornelius' household. Today we're going to see the fallout. Peter's going to take heat as a result of his encounter with these Gentiles. Verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, and then you see uh, Peter's explanation. The context is that Peter has a wonderful Holy Spirit experience breaking down the boundaries, breaking ground with these Gentile converts. And you would ask yourself, well, isn't that a good thing? And the text reads that Satan gathered together a horde of demons and a whole bunch of pagans from the area, and he went up to destroy the experience with a full frontal assault, right? No, that's not what the text reads. The opposition came from the church. Sadly, there are times when God's people are the cause of opposition to God's work. What do you mean the word of God spread to the Gentiles? That's a terrible thing. Where could you have gotten such an idea? And of course, we know the idea came from God himself. Why did they give Peter a hard time? This should have been a cause for celebration. Here you see there's a jealousy issue. Their attitude was that salvation thing is reserved for us. Who invited them? Jealousy is an ugly, ugly thing. It's believed that Shakespeare coined the term green-eyed monster to characterize jealousy. But what about us? Are we happy when somebody else gets blessed and maybe not us? What about on our jobs? If somebody else is promoted, are we happy for them? Or is our, our attitude, hey, I deserve that promotion. I have more education. I have more training. It's a heart check. Other manifestations uh, for opposi opposition from God's people. Here again, you see some manifestations. There's other manifestations, and they usually show up in maybe rooted in pride or some type of selfish ambition. My aspirations, my agenda, my abilities, my ministries. When you hear people say I and my a lot, be careful because it's, it's self-centered. When believers are not working in sync, the body suffers. Not only does Satan seek to destroy, but sometimes he does it through believers. And I have to explain the concept of suggestion versus possession. We don't believe, and it's not scriptural, that a believer who's sealed with the Holy Spirit, who's a child of God, can be possessed by Satan. 1 John 4, 4 says that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, right? 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says that light hath no fellowship with darkness, nor Christ with Belial. Uh, the Holy Spirit and, uh, and uh, Satan cannot occupy the same dwelling. And 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But then there's suggestion. We certainly, as believers, we're still tied to the sinful flesh. We're still open to suggestion. Now, let me give you some examples. The Bible talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, we are still tied to sinful flesh. So often, the suggestions to do the wrong thing come from within ourselves. Another way that it can happen is through the world. We know that the world system is against God. Jesus says the world doesn't love you. 
You know, the world would accept you if you were of the world, but you are not of the world. That's why the world won't accept you. And the last one is the devil. Certainly he can make suggestions to us, and sometimes we succumb to those suggestions as God's people, unfortunately. You know, Satan's like the great fisherman, and I've said this before. I went fishing. I'm not a very good fisherman, but uh, good fishermen show me that what type of fish do you want to catch? Depending on the type of fish you want to catch, you use different baits because each fish likes something special to eat. And humans are like that too. Satan knows what makes us tick. He's been observing humankind for a long time, and he knows each one of us individually what we succumb to. In every church, believers can hear the true word of God for years and not let it take root. They just don't get it. And that's why I like to hear um, when Stephen had come up, I said, don't hold back. There's some pretty awful things that happen in Guatemala. Don't hold back. People need to see what the reality of is of a world that's dying without Jesus Christ. He said that some pastors, when he goes to church and he speaks, they tell him, tone it down. You know, you don't want to frighten anybody. I say, tell the truth. This is reality. Because we need to look at our lives and say, sometimes as Christians, we bicker about silly things and argue about ridiculous things. But, and what that, that does is it kind of takes us away from the mission that God has for us. I want to read a little uh, short poem that Wearsby talks about in his book on this subject. He says, To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And again, it just goes to show you how we can succumb to the wrong things and be a cog in the wheel of God's progress. Verse 1, Caesarea to Jerusalem was about 55 miles, and we can see that bad or damaging news travels as fast as lightning. Mark Twain remarked that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. It's a pretty sobering thought. Because in verse 2 and 3, we see this was a hotly contended issue. The translators show that this was an emphatic statement that was made. You know, you, what are you doing? You went and ate with those uncircumcised men? Again, this was God's plan. I wonder how much of this was embellishment. How much of the news that got to the brothers at Jerusalem was embellishment? How much of the good stuff was left out of it? We don't know exactly what was filtered down to the brothers uh, before Peter got there. And some people have the attitude when it comes to talking. But I'm just telling the truth. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about gossip and telling tales and talking about things. But some people say, well, I'm just telling the truth. Really. Does anybody here raise your hand if you individually have the market cornered on truth? Because if so, I'd like to counsel with you because I don't. We say, well, I'm just telling the truth. Are we just telling the truth or are we are telling things from our own perspective? The only truth lies in the foundation of God's word. That's the only truth. I often say, uh, now I say, if maybe there's an issue that I want to tell from my side, I often say to people, the disclaimer is, but again, you're only hearing it from my side because I don't have the market cornered on truth either. Did you hear about Peter? Whisper, whisper. Peter's supposed to be a leader. Whisper, whisper. It seems the gossip arrives at Jerusalem before Peter does. But is it any different today? In every church, there's always a small group of people that have to whisper, whisper about somebody else. Oh, they're coming down the hall. Be quiet, right? It's the way gossip is. Peter's reputation was maligned, and it was on the line before he even opened his mouth, right? 
And he had a great reputation in the church. The Bible says that gossip is a destroyer. It's forbidden in the law, Leviticus 19.16. It says that gossip causes the separation of friends, Proverbs 16.28. And oftentimes weak people hear one side of a gossip story and the target of the gossip is usually turned out to be the bad guy and you formulate it in your mind, well, I don't like that person when you haven't even heard the other side of the story. Proverbs 18.13 says that it is shameful and foolishness to answer a matter or to make a determination on a matter before you hear the, you know, before you hear the, the entire side. Proverbs 18.17 says a man's story seems proper until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. That was a lesson as a, as a rookie officer. That was a lesson that I learned early on. You would get sent, and they tell you as a cop, be impartial. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, right? Write it down. You'll go to a neighbor dispute, and it happened often. The first neighbor that you run into, you open the door, and they tell you the story about something their neighbor did. And in your mind, you're thinking, wow, that's what a jerk your neighbor must be. Until you go to the other neighbor, and you see, okay, that person has a side of the story, too. You can't weigh in on any type of facts or make any type of determination until you hear both sides of the story. It's very important. There's another poem. My wife and I spent uh, a few days away, and uh, it was a bed and breakfast. And they had this library, and it was like famous quotes. And this quote struck, struck me, as a matter of fact. It was Edward Wallace Hawk, and he said, There is so much good in the worst of us, and so much bad in the best of us, that it hardly becomes any of us to talk about the rest of us. <laughs> kind of sums it up. Verse 3, change the subject a little bit. One of the aspects of the problem that the brothers had with Peter eating with these people had to do with food. Yes, they were uncircumcised men, they were Gentiles, but we also know that the Gentile diet was a huge hindrance to fellowship between Jews and non-Jews. So one of the aspects that was a wall was food. What I find it amazing is how Jesus used food as an object lesson to bring people together in the form of communion. Remember that? So food could have been a divider, but Jesus made it a uniter. See, Jesus takes everything that's bad and turns it into something good. But you see, too, the ebb and flow between mountaintop and valley experiences, especially in ministry. But I just want to serve God. What's going on? Well, look what happened in Peter's life. But he just wanted to serve God. But he just wanted to be obedient. And he comes home, and his own people gave him a hard time, right? They, they got all over his case. But also, you could see John the Baptist in this. Same thing. Mountaintop experiences with the Lord and then valley experiences. But I just want to serve the Lord. What's going on here? John the Baptist was a fiery preacher. You know, I, I just would love to hear a recorded sermon from those days and hear how he was on fire and the, the emphasis that he used to get his point across. And then he was in prison, about to lose his head, about to lose his life. And he sends word to Jesus and says, what's going on here? Why am I in prison? I, I just wanted to serve the Lord. Or if you look at Elijah, Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel, mountaintop, literally mountaintop experiences. 400 prophets of Baal, they, they take the sacrifices out and he does this amazing thing and, and God calls down fire from heaven and, and torches the sacrifice and everybody says, wow, your God is the true God. He defeats all the prophets of Baal. He's a great man in the Lord's eyes. Then what happens? 
he gets word from Queen Jezebel, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm going to get you. You're going to die. And he, and he panics and he flees. Runs, 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 runs. He runs away from his ministry. And the Lord says, what are you doing here? <laughs> there's there's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Go back over there, right? So you see a lot of times with these, these mountaintop and valley experiences. When Stephen, our missionary, came back, um, actually I was talking to him last week, and we just had a great conversation. And he's had those same experiences, you know. I'm sure when the, there was a story he didn't tell you about uh, he had this truck, and apparently the drug dealers thought it was a police vehicle. So they opened fire on him with AK-47s, you know, going to mow him down. Did I do that good? And he ends up escaping, right? And uh, what happens later? I mean, this is, that's a scary experience. He's terrified. He finds out later that after some time, the drug dealers realized that he wasn't a cop because as he passed, he could see some of their faces, and they saw him. And he, he thought they were going to kill him. So they come back, they send a delegation afterwards and say, we apologize, we thought you were the police. And they, they apologize because of all the work he's been doing for the people in Guatemala. They know the love that he has for these people. And he said, it's unheard of for drug dealers. These people are ruthless, they kill people. And they apologize for shooting at them because they had the, the wrong person, right? So you, you see these ups and downs in ministry, it happens. So if you're going through that today and you're serving in ministry, I just want to encourage you. Great people, men and women before you, have gone through that. Verse 5. Peter says, now he recounts his story. He's, he's explaining here. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. In a trance I saw a vision. An object descended like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and the birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing uncommon or common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At the very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, and who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words which you and all your household will be saved. And, the, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So we see that everything worked out. And that's, uh, if you know me long enough, I, I often say, Ah, oh, the truth will always come out. Sometimes things are frustrating. Things are, are, are you know, they're nebulous. They're cloudy at first. But you know what? The truth always comes out. Now, will it 100% always come out here? Probably not, but it certainly will in the afterlife. You know, the Bible talks about all the secrets that men do in darkness will be revealed. The things that are in, in quiet will be shouted from the housetops. So the truth eventually comes out. Peter had to explain quickly what was going on because there was an accusation against him. It was emotional and it was emphatic. 
I just want to digress, digress briefly about emotionalism. Sometimes I use current events to make my point. Um, I, I, I was maybe walking past the TV at work and I saw uh, something that caught my eye. How many of you saw that recent um, emotional display with Ellen DeGeneres and the puppy pound? Raise your hand. So apparently a lot of you. Apparently, and I don't really care who was right and who was wrong. That's not where I'm going. Apparently she had, you know, she's famous. She has her own talk show. And she bought, uh, she got a dog from the pound and she couldn't keep it. And she had a friend who would have, who was willing to take the dog. So she gave the dog to the friend. And because it wasn't with the rules of the pound, the pound came to the friend and took the dog back and said that Ellen did not go through the proper channels. Well, Ellen was heartbroken because the people that she gave the dog to had children. And she felt that the dog was wrenched away from these kids who bonded with the dog. So she apparently in the taping of one of her shows, she had an emotional almost breakdown. She was crying uncontrollably and it was taped and they chose to air that segment, right? What happened was instead of retaping it, she felt that the emotional appeal was, I guess, a good thing. Well, people saw the show, and of course, a lot of people love Ellen. And what happened was this was a, an impetus or a precipitation to uh, death threats to the pound, where they, now they had to have security, because people were caught up with the emotionalism of Ellen's appeal. Emotionalism can be a dangerous thing. It sways people. Usually mob mentality is carried out by emotionalism. Okay? Same thing with uh, the debate I talked about with Rabbi Shmuley Boteak um, a week ago or the week before and Dr. Michael Brown. Brown is a Jewish believer. The rabbi is not. Brown gets up in the debate and he says he explains through the scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. But his explanation, he said that my opponent's going to come up and he's going to try to sway you with emotionalism. He's going to talk about the Holocaust. He's going to talk about the Crusades because part of the audience was Jewish. And he's going to try to sway you into not believing Jesus is the Messiah. Stick to the facts. Stick to the scriptures. Stick to God's word. And that's a good point. Emotionalism can sway us. It often does. If emotionalism was true and we should do everything based on feelings, then every time uh, a church counsels a husband and wife, all the wife has to do is cry and the husband becomes the bad guy. Now, some of you may look at me and say, well, that was insensitive. Now, if you think that, you just got swayed by emotionalism. Do you see? You got caught in a trap. So be careful of emotionalism. Honestly, we can't trust our own emotions. We can't. Think about your heart. Think about what you think of somebody today and what you think about somebody a month from now. You can't trust your emotions. Now, I've got to tell you, that's hard for me coming from Italian descent because my people are very dramatic, so I've got to take that lesson too. Focus on the Word of God. But it all worked out. Because Peter was trustworthy. And the question is, do we have a trustworthy character? What are we known by? Do we exaggerate things and we're known as an exaggerator? Do we tell stories? Do we not follow through on our commitments? Do we focus on ourselves and people see that? Because Peter's reputation here, follow this, carried a lot of weight in dissipation of this matter. And the question is, would ours... It's something to reflect on. If you put yourself in Peter's shoes, could you help them to understand that it was really God's word and God's direction in your life because of your reputation? Something to chew on. In verse 12, we saw that Peter had six witnesses to this event. The law only required two witnesses to an event. Peter knew this was a hot-button issue. He knew he was going to take heat, but he obeyed anyway. Although I believe that if God 
is behind any work that we have that we don't necessarily need all those witnesses. And there's a, in Christianity, there's always a balance uh, in the scripture. There's trusting the Lord and then there's human responsibility, right? Trusting the Lord and human responsibility. Trusting the Lord doesn't mean staring up at the sky all day wondering how you're going to get your next meal. There's also human responsibility. But human responsibility, do, 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 I'm my own person, no one's ever helped me out, I'm going to make it because of me. If you're a Christian, that's also the wrong attitude to have because there's got to be an element of trusting the Lord in your life because we can push him out, do everything ourselves, and he's like, I can't get in. <laughs> I can't get in. Remember, relationship is voluntary. It's a two-way street. Although often in a moment of crisis when God sends us to do something and we know it won't be received well, will we still do it? Or do we, or do we pretend that we don't hear anything? Are we obedient? There's a situation in my life with a, a contractor, and he came in, and he was supposed to do some work, and he signed a contract, and money was exchanged, and it was all legal. Uh, and he had some problems in his life, and he uh, pretty much decided he wasn't going to finish the job. And I think there was seven times that he, I guess, stood me up, for lack of a better word, and just doesn't show up, doesn't call nothing. So eventually I said, you know, I, I have to go through legal means. He wasn't a brother. So it was, you know, it was something that either finished the job or, you know, return the funds. But the interesting thing was I remember looking at my calendar and I counted seven times that he did this. And I couldn't get the seven times out of my head. And I know in the scripture that Jesus speaks about seven times and seven times 70. And we can make the excuse and say, well, that's with a brother. And if he repents first. But you know what? I just felt the Lord calling me to say, show mercy, show grace. There's something going on in this man's life. And you know what? I backed off. Well, long story short, he ends up coming, coming and finishing the job. It was a miracle because I even stopped calling him at that point. I just figured it was a loss, right? And the guy confessed something about his marriage. I mean, he just broke down. So I'm glad I paid attention to what the Lord asked me to do. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't go through legal proceedings if you've been ripped off, so to speak? No, I'm not saying that. But in this case, I felt God was speaking to me loud and clear, saying, let it go. It's going to work out. And it ended up being a witness to him. So when God's speaking to us, do we, do we manipulate the word of God? Do we make excuses or do we just listen to him? Right. But thankfully, Peter, and again, if we're honest, we know that sometimes we are obedient. Sometimes I'm obedient and sometimes I miss opportunities. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that in our own lives. Sometimes we are obedient, and sometimes we miss opportunities. But in Peter's case, thankfully, he did the right thing. He took heat from his own people, and it all worked out in the end. Verse 15. And as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. What Peter's doing here is he's going back to the... Uh, the event of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came in and fell upon them and it was these great works of the Holy Spirit, great works of God. And Peter's bringing their recollection back to Pentecost, which was a few years ago at this point, to indicate the magnificent displays of the Holy Spirit. Number one, as a, an object lesson or as a proof text to explaining, look, this has precedence, but also to show them that Actually, we can see out of this that these great signs and wonders were not necessarily an everyday occurrence for him to go back to that event. 
And in verse 17, Peter says, If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could withstand God? That's a great phrase. Who was I that I could withstand God? And I'm going to come back to that. In Malachi 1.11, which is in the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, God says, My name will be great among the Gentiles. My name will be great among the nations. So there is precedence to going to these people. God's plan included the Gentiles, and Peter was correct in stating that he was not able to withstand God and God's plans. I tell you what, if God wants to use us and we ignore God and, and we you know, don't want to do what he asks us to do, he's not, he's not going to pretty much force us, maybe in some case if he really wants you to do it, but he'll use somebody else and you'll miss the blessing. And you've got to say that we've all probably in our lives missed a blessing here and there. Because God will ask you to do it, and God will ask you to do it, and if you still refuse, he'll use somebody else to glorify his name. At times, God calls us to do something, and it's not necessarily received well from the household of faith for a multitude of reasons. But our motto is our motto, who was I that I could withstand God, regardless of pressure from our peers. And it may sound trite, uh, may sound you know something to talk about in Christianity, but when you're in the middle of the storm, and you have pressure from other people, and God calls you to do something and you know it's right, and everybody else is around you, then you'll see that really is, it is a lot of pressure. There's a great temptation to say, I don't need this aggravation, and just kind of go with the flow. But we need to withstand that and in our heart be strong and take courage and know that God is on our side. Verse 18. This is the response from the people he's speaking to. When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God also has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They became silent, and they glorified God. They reflected on what he said, and they eventually came around. It's no different today. Some people come around and accept the Lord's vision, and some don't. What is our reaction to hearing something that we just don't want to hear? What is our reaction to that? Are we silent and thoughtful? He's not here today, but uh, one of our elders, Art Kiefer, he's probably, to me, one of the easiest people to talk to. Because even if it's something about him personally, and you talk to Artie, he'll listen, and he'll digest what you're saying, and he'll think about it. He may not agree with what you have to say, but at least he'll listen. I like dealing with people like that. I try to be like that. If somebody has something to say, and maybe it affects you personally, are you thoughtful? Do you listen? Or do you right away put up a wall, you know, close the gates, put up the defenses, get the hot oil on the top, you know, ready to pour on somebody's head? Or are we receptive? I see some people laughing. <laughs> How many of us do we, st- do we still fly off the handle? Ah, you know, you just fly off the handle. You throw your hands up and you, you, you throw a fit. Or do you display the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, faithfulness and self-control, right? It's a hard check. The bottom line is, do we accept what the Lord is doing regardless of our preconceived biases, motives, and ideas? In their situation, the bias was against a people group group that was getting the same benefits as they were getting. There was an obvious bias there. In our situation, it could be something the Lord is doing where maybe somebody else is elevated and we don't have a big part to play. And that happens. It's happened to all of us, you know. 
you maybe think that not just a job, but even in ministry, somebody gets something or somebody gets elevated and it's not you. And right away in your heart, something funny happens. You know, it's almost like a weird thing with your stomach, right? Again, we spoke of something good happening and not directly uh, benefiting us, and it's a jealousy issue, and we see that in the text. But there's also a reverse issue that's also bad with the same jealousy motivator. You ever see people take pleasure in somebody else's misfortune? You see that a, lot, a lot of that in the political arena. Uh, when somebody falls, the next person who's the runner-up is licking their chops. They can't wait for that person to be run over by the bus so they could get in there. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> you know, should that be named towards with God's people? It shouldn't, but sometimes God's people do that stuff too, and that's really said when that happens. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. The first verse at the end, it says that they preached to no one but the Jews only. The second verse says, but some spoke to the Hellenists. The Hellenists. Well, the same word is used in Acts chapter 6, but there's a contextual issue here. The issue is, in Acts chapter 6, there was a dispute between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, but they were incorporated in the body of Christ. They were in the church, but it was a cultural difference. Here, it's clearly the Jews versus the Hellenists. So the Jews uh, who are unsaved there and the Hellenists who are unsaved. And the question is, who's going to go talk to these people? So a different group of people, they're not part of the church. They need to hear the gospel. So there's the difference. But what I see this is as old vision versus fresh vision. And the question is, when God changes course, we must respond accordingly, not fearing change. Most of us fear change. I don't like change. When I finally get settled in a routine, I don't like when somebody breaks my routine. I'm not big into the computer. You know, I, I have all these books in my house, and people say, well, you could do that online. I'd rather just take a book off the shelf and thumb through it, and that's just the way I do things. I'm old-fashioned because I don't know how to work those computer things. You know, I know Josh is willing to teach me, but I'm just, it's a routine. We don't like change. And it's no different when God calls us to change. Nobody likes to change. I like me the way I am for the last 30 years, the last 40 years, the last 50 years. What do you mean I've got to change? This is uncomfortable. So when God calls us to change, especially when it's God, don't fear it. Don't fear it. A caution to this is many do some bizarre things under the guise of fresh vision. New vision here was right on time, but based on prophetic utterances in the Old Testament. It was not necessarily new and uncharted territories. What Peter was doing, okay, and I'm sure he did this, he could have easily gone to Scripture in Malachi and the different Old Testament Scriptures and said, listen, guys, even the Old Testament, our fathers, you know, the prophets prophesied that the Gentiles would receive salvation. So why is this so hard for you to understand? So it was new, but it really wasn't new. And it certainly wasn't something new and bizarre that contradicted Scripture. And you see some of that stuff today. Uh, there's a lot of bizarre things in the name of Christianity. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, uh, the Calvary Chapel movement, broke fresh ground with studying the Bible verse by verse in its entirety, right? Novel idea, right? 
you would think that everybody would want to know the whole scripture. But for his time, he was a pioneer. His idea, like those in verse 20 here, was not really a new idea, but it was new at his time, but it was based on scripture. You follow me? And Smith was chastised and vilified by many stuck in the old system. The old wineskins of tradition elevated over scripture, uh, church rules and bylaws elevated over scripture. He got a lot of heat. Uh, some people actually de- developed a website just, for, just to attack him, as ad hominem, just to attack him personally, because they didn't like his vision. They didn't like him breaking ground. And it kind of reminds me of Revelation 3, to the church of Sardis, Jesus wrote. And again, some believe that it was the Protestant church that Jesus was speaking to. And there's something for everybody. If you look at the seven churches in Revelation, he has something to say about each church movement and time period and where they kind of messed up. But he says to the church of Sardis, he says, you have a name, but that you are alive, but you are dead. If you talk to people in Europe who go to England and different missions, uh, Italy, the church is dead in Europe. There's no real excitement. There's no desire for the Holy Spirit and desire for God's word. It's a job. They're up to, and again, of course, there's, there's, um, there's, there's always exceptions, but behind the pulpit, reading something, you know, going through the motions, it's a job. Teaching the word of God is not a job. If somebody can't be excited about teaching God's word, then they should acquiesce to somebody else and let them do it. Verse 19. Now, we see a few areas here that are mentioned, and um, we're going to put the map up, and we're going to look at, I'm going to show you some of the different geographical areas with the map. And I'm also going to read something about Antioch itself. Okay, once I show these areas. So you see the different areas. You see, see my pointer, there you go. You see Jerusalem, Judea area. And you see Phoenicia, okay, which was mentioned. We see Cyprus. We see uh, Syria and Syrian Antioch. And this over here is Tarsus, where Paul uh, was from. But you see the spread out, north and out. In those days, it was really the, the far reaches of the known world. Now, to get your bearings for today, uh, today this is Israel, okay? This is Jordan over here. Uh, Phoenicia acquiesced or gave way to um, uh, Tyre and Sidon, which became uh, Lebanon. And Syria has always been pretty much Syria. And this up here is modern-day Turkey. So for those of you who kind of know some of this stuff. So what you see is this this spreading out. We also see uh, men from Cyrene. Cyrene is actually over here somewhere. Cyrene is North Africa. And we talked about Simon the Cyrenian who helped to carry Jesus' cross and how he came from Africa. Okay, so you see, you see this big spread uh, that's going on here. For those of you who are interested, um, there was a change in headquarters, so to speak, from Jerusalem, Kana, to Antioch. Antioch became like the new headquarters or sending area. Um, in Canaan, under Joshua's leadership, we saw that uh, Gilgal gave way to uh, Shiloh, The tabernacle was taken from Gilgal to Shiloh as a new headquarters. Here you see the headquarters of Christianity kind of move a lot from Jerusalem to Antioch, and you see a lot of missionaries go out from Antioch. And as we go through Acts, I'll put up the maps here and there to show you where we're going here. I'm just going to read a little bit about Antioch. It says, Situated on the most important trade routes of the day, Antioch was an ideal city 
for a flourishing, missions-minded church that was destined to play a key role in the expansion of early Christianity. Seleucus I founded the city about 300 B.C. and named it for his father, Antiochus. Antioch served as the capital of the Roman province of Syria under New Testament times. An important note was there were several Antiochs. So if we read about another Antioch, understand that was a common name. Located on the east bank of the Orontes River, Antioch was about 60 miles from the Mediterranean Sea and about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. With a population of more than half a million, it was the third largest city of the Roman Empire, ranking behind only Rome and Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Under the Roman rulers, Antioch became one of the most beautiful cities of the Roman Empire. Its main street, about two miles long, was paved with marble and flanked on both sides by hundreds of columns, which supported ornamental porches and balconies. Its culture, cultural splendor and beautiful buildings included the Temple of Artemis, the amphitheater, and royal palaces, contributed to its reputation as the Paris of the ancient world among scholars and researchers. There was also another archaeologist who dubbed it the New York City of the ancient world. So it was pretty, a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities to reach people. Uh, this was the city of Antioch. Verse 21. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and then they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. Verse 21 refers back to verse 20, to those who had the fresh vision. As with Peter, the Lord rewards us again in keeping with his change of direction. And the fruit of that was a great many repented and believed. Now, you got to understand, I could gloss over this for the sake of time, or I could say that you have to put yourself in that position. You got a pagan city. Go to New York, you know. <laughs> I came from New York, so please don't be offended. But if you go there, you see a lot of, you know, debauchery. You see prostitution. You see uh, corruption. You see, you see it in Jersey, too. So there's really not much of a difference. But you go to some of these big cities and you see just a, a, a debauched lifestyle. And just imagine being there, sort of like Stephen in Guatemala, being there, talking to the people, preaching the word of God, praying, getting people to you know, join you in that effort. And then all of a sudden, you know, all these people start becoming Christians. And you actually start planting churches in these pagan areas where uh, halls of prostitution or uh, peep shows or any of this garbage that's out there starts to be changed and those buildings now become churches that's fantastic so put your mind in that thing when you see these great many people repenting and believing that's really exciting verse 23 they, they encouraged them all with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the lord so we know that barnabas was an encourager and, um, you know, they're, they're talking to these people and they're encouraging them with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. The word continue in the Greek has other meanings. The other words instead of continue is to adhere to, to cleave, 
to bond or to join. Continue with the Lord. Cleave to the Lord. Bond with the Lord. Join to him. That's the only thing that's going to save you. Hopefully that's why we're Christians, to uh, have those manifestations towards the Lord. Sometimes we can focus a lot on perks, you know, good teaching, Christian culture, fellowship. And sometimes we forget it, who we serve, why we serve him, and who we worship. It's a relationship issue. In verse 24, again, we run into Barnabas again. Barnabas has a good reputation with all the brethren. There's something special about this man. Every time you hear about Barnabas, it's on a positive note. And verse 26, the last verse here, it says, At Antioch they were first called Christians. The word Christian means, when you break it down into its root words, it means um, followers of Christ, like little Christ, or it could also mean the party of Christ or belonging to Christ. And it's only used three times in the New Testament. And I believe this is appropriate, especially with election season coming up. Some of you here may be Republicans. Some of you may be Democrats, independents, whatever. You know, name the party. You could be a part of it. But if the party of Christ was a political party, could somebody say that there was enough evidence that we support that party that they would ask us to be the spokesperson? And you've heard that phrase different ways. Are we, is it just a name or are we really of the party of Christ? Does our life reflect it? Does it show it? In the end, I believe that this section, uh, going through all the uh, issues that were happening there, especially with Peter explaining himself, in the end, I believe this section is about reputation. Mostly Peter's reputation, and to a smaller extent, we see Barnabas's reputation. I want my reputation to be like theirs. Don't you? Don't you? If something controversial comes down the line, and I have to ask you to trust me as I can't give you all the details... Do I have the same reputation as Peter did and Barnabas? Do I have that same reputation with you? I certainly hope so. I don't have any news for you. I'm not going to tell you anything controversial. But, you know, we got to look at that. What is our reputation? What are we known for? Let's even take a moment to think about that. Think about yourself. What am I known for? Am I known for being obstinate or am I known for being gentle? Am I known for being generous or am I known for being stingy? Am I known for being critical? Or am I known for being loving? Am I known for everywhere I go, I have people focus on me? Or am I known for trying to focus on others? Oh, I feel okay. How, how about you? How's your kids doing? And this is something, think about the characteristics that define us. Because honestly, if it's not good, the only way to change that is to continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. As, as you do that, as you continue in the direction of being Christ-like, these things will start to, to go away and people will see Jesus Christ in you. So let's let that drive us this week. Let's pray.